video war game is not the same as a real war. And video driving game is not the same as driving a race car. The same fashion, uh, earthly sanctuary, the earthly tabernacle, is only a dim reflection of what the heavenly tabernacle is like. Uh, the, the writer of Hebrews explains the temporary nature of the Old Testament law. He did, when he did so, in this particular chapter, he didn't point at the temple, which was in existence in Jerusalem at the time of his writing. Rather, he looked back at the tabernacle in the wilderness, which better illustrated the temporary nature of the Old Testament law. Uh, but as it's important as is, John MacArthur points out the Bible only devotes two chapters to the story of creation, but it gives about 50 chapters to the tabernacle. The first covenant, the law, was not worthless or pointless. The problem that is being addressed is that the Jews have long ago forgotten that everything connected with the ceremonial law was preparatory and temporary. The tabernacle is a giant portrait of Jesus Christ. Everything about the tabernacle and its furniture was a picture of Jesus. The tabernacle had only one entrance, which I believe is a graphic picture of Jesus who said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Jesus also said of himself, I am the door. Just as there is but one entrance into the tabernacle, there is only one way to God. He is the only way and the only door. Christianity is accused of being exclusive, and it is. Not because Christians have made it so, but because God has made it so. There are three things about the tabernacle I want you to see with me tonight. First of all, the pattern of the tabernacle. It says in verse 1, Then indeed even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. The tabernacle illustrates the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant. The old covenant was based on the law of God, and the new covenant was based on the love of God. God was using these things in the tabernacle as an object lesson to prepare his people to receive his son. So what was the object lesson that God was teaching by the tabernacle? He was teaching them gradually. We might even say that this was the picture book stage of Revelation. He used progressive revelation to teach the truth in stages. First there was the tabernacle, then there was the temple, and finally Jesus came as the living, breathing temple of God. The apostle John wrote in John 1.14, And the Lord became flesh, and he dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of, of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The word that is translated dwelt literally is tabernacle. Jesus tabernacled among us. In verse 2, he begins to talk about the furnishings of the temple and the divisions of the temple. He says, For a tabernacle was prepared, the first part in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, 
which is called the sanctuary. And behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, which were the golden pot that held the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot, we cannot now speak in detail. If we look at a, a picture of the tabernacle, we see very quickly that it is nothing but a tent. It's a tent in the wilderness, basically. Of course, this was given to the Jews while they were making the journey through the wilderness on the way to, to Cana. Uh, and there's some divisions of that holy place. There is, uh, first of all, the outer court. That's the biggest part of this uh, division that you see. The outer court, in that the bronze laver and the bronze altar were located in this outer court. The altar was seven and a half feet square and four and a half feet high. It was made of Acadia wood overlaid with bronze and had a horn on each corner. The fire on the altar was to keep be keep burning at all times, and the daily sacrifices were offered in the morning and in the afternoon. Beyond the outer court is the holy place. This is where the priests performed their duties. This sacred area was occupied by the golden lampstand, by the incense altar, and the table of showbread. Well, let's look at those together for just a moment. First of all, the lampstand, called the menorah. It was uh, beaten and fashioned out of a single block of gold. It had three branches coming out of each side of the central shaft. The seven lamps on top of the branches were likely round saucers with pinched rims that held the wick and the olive oil. Lampstand pictures Christ as the one who illuminates the things of God through the Holy Spirit. Then there was the table of showbread. Opposite the menorah was this table of showbread. It is also built of Acadia wood and overlaid with solid gold. The table had a surface of three feet by one and a half feet. On it were 12 loaves of bread, one for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. These loaves of bread were placed on the temple, on the table, on the Sabbath, and were replaced by fresh bread the following Sabbath. The high priestly line would eat the replaced bread. The table of the sacred bread pictures Christ as the sustenance of his chosen people. It also contained the altar of incense. It's known as the golden altar. This three-foot high altar was the location of the regular incense offerings. Each morning and each evening when tending the light of the menorah the priest would offer a mixture of frankincense and other Aramaic gums and on the day of the atonement the high priest would sprinkle blood on the horns of the altar. The altar of sustenance shows Christ interceding for his people to the Father. Then there is the holy of holies. The key item in this whole description is behind the second curtain, which separated the holy place where the priests performed their duties from the holy of holies, or the most holy place. In a way, the two rooms are a statement concerning uh, the relationship between God and people during the two covenants. 
Life in the Old Covenant is symbolized by the holy place. That was where the people had a limited access to God. They had access through the priest. But even the high priest could only enter the Holy of Holies on one day each year on the Day of Atonement. They still observe it. It's called Yom Kippur. Of course, not in the temple because there's no temple in existence. He could enter into the Holy of Holies on that one day, but not with not without the blood of the sacrifice. For as he says in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 22, for without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Under the new covenant, uh, it is symbolized by the Holy of Holies. Now, by the blood of the new covenant, Jesus did what the Old Testament sacrifices had not been able to do. In him, the Holy of Holies was opened. And through faith in him, we can enter into direct fellowship with God. The Old Covenant, the Old Testament law, demonstrated that the way to God was barred. Because that veil kept even the priest from entering the Holy of Holies. And in spite of all the pageantry and all the symbolism, there was no access to God. The veil remained like an impenetrable wall between sinners and the Almighty God. But through Jesus, the way into the most holy place was opened. And through him, we enter into a direct fellowship with the Father. The New Testament tells us that on the day that Jesus died... The curtain that barred the way was actually torn in two from the top to the bottom, revealing the way to God was opened. The opening of the Holy of Holies was an indication to the Levitical priests that their ministry had been dissolved. So what did these priests do? Did they walk boldly in through the way to God's presence that was now opened? No, far from it. In the greatest of tragedies, they sewed up the veil again with their own hands, thus reestablishing the barrier that God himself had removed. In the holiest place of all earthly places, there is but one piece of furniture in the Holy of Holies, is the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark was, was a picture of the presence of God. The only objects in the Holy of Holies within the Ark were three things. Number one, the two tablets of the Ten Commandments, which reminded Israel of their failure to keep the Ten Commandments. The rod of Aaron that blossomed, which pictures Christ as the branch chosen above all others. And the pot of manna, which pictures Christ as the daily bread for his people. The ark was covered by the mercy seat or the place of propitiation on which the high priest sprinkled the blood of the goat seven times on the day of atonement. As God looked down into the ark, he saw the symbols of Israel's sin, rebellion, and failure. But when the blood of the sacrifice was applied to the mercy seat, blood of the sacrifice covered the sins of his people. The ark was overshadowed by two cherubim of glory, so-called because it was there that the glory of God's presence was manifested. The ark itself 
apparently disappeared when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the temple in 586 B.C. There are a lot of theories out and about where it may be now and when it might come into presence again. I don't know. The second thing I'd have you look at is the plan of the tabernacle. It says, Now when these things had been thus prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle, that first section, the holy place, performing the services. But into the second part, the holy of holies, the high priest went alone once a year, and not without the blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sin committed in ignorance. These verses explain that the priest, as appointed, went daily into the holy place to perform functions such as tending the lampstand and replacing the showbread. I read an interesting thing that said there were, there were so many priests in the time of Jesus, by the time of Jesus, that it was highly likely that the priests, if they were fortunate, they might get to serve one week in the temple in their lifetime. But as to the second part, being the Holy of Holies, only the high priest went and then get once a year only on the Day of Atonement. His entrance into the Holy of Holies was not for fellowship, but for atonement. The atoning blood was, the, was first of all for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. Access into the Holy of Holies was thus restricted, severely restricted. Even when someone could enter, it wouldn't be for real fellowship with God. The ancient Jewish rabbis wrote of how the high priest did not prolong his prayer in the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement because it might make the people think that he was killed. When he came out, he threw a party for all of his friends because he had emerged safely from the presence of God. I do want you to notice that it says here that atonement was made for the people's sins committed in ignorance. Sins of ignorance were the specific aim of the Day of Atonement. It was assumed that the known sins were taken care of through the regular sin offerings and the daily sacrifices. In this respect, Jesus' work is far greater than the work done on the Day of Atonement. Jesus' work on the cross is sufficient to atone for both the sins which we do in ignorance and the sins that we do knowing so. The third and last part of this is the purpose of the tabernacle, verses 8 through 10. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of alls was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the sacrifice perfect in regard to conscience, concerning it only with food and drinks and various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed upon the time of, rep of reformation. On the one hand, <clears throat> the old tabernacle was showing that access to God was barred. Because the cur that curtain, the veil, kept even the priest from the Holy of Holies. Yet now the Holy Spirit 
was showing just the opposite, that the way to God was finally open. Well, we notice that limited access, as we've already noted, life under the old covenant symbolized by the holy place where the people had a limited access to God and they had access only through the priest again even the high priest could not enter the holy of holies and that <clears throat> this cleansing was temporary and impermanent it says it was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to conscience. While it might appear, you would think, that a guilty conscience would drive people to God. But in fact, just the opposite is what happens often. People try almost everything imaginable to relive, to relieve and avoid guilt, as long as it doesn't involve confession. The writer of Hebrews addresses this issue when he wrote, in regard to the conscience. The conscience can be defined as moral awareness of good or evil. But your conscience does not make you do right or wrong. It just lets you know when you're about to do something wrong. And it makes you suffer when you have done something wrong. Paul wrote to the church in Rome, and said, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness between themselves, their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. Paul declared that all men, Gentiles and Jews, are responsible before God for their actions. Everyone has a conscience as a standard of right living. To act contrary to the urging of one's conscience is wrong, and actions that go against our conscience cannot, in fact, arise out of faith. But it has to be remembered that the conscience is not infallible. It is possible to virtually nullify our conscience through repeated abuse. Paul spoke of people whose conscience were so convoluted that they glory in their shame. After so much violation, the conscience finally falls silent. Our conscience is like the nerve endings in our fingertips. Its sensitivity to external stimulus can be damaged by the buildup of calluses or even wounded so badly as to virtually be impervious to any feeling conscience is talked about in several places in scripture and warned about in several places in scripture. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul warns that the conscience can become calloused. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? Paul says that the conscience can not only be Calloused, but it also can be seared. Uh, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. So, after looking at the conscience, so how can our guilt be removed and our conscience cleared? Well, only through the sacrifice 
of an acceptable sacrifice. Paul explained it to the Romans when he wrote, and all are justified freely by his grace through the, the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. God presented Christ as the sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness. Because of his forbearance, he left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. Well, the only two reliable guides to conduct are, first of all, the Word of God. 2 Timothy 3, verse 16 and 17 of Scripture. Most all of you know, I'm sure. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished into all good works. He says that it is given for doctrine, that's teaching what's right, for reproof, that's teaching what's wrong, for correction, teaching what you need to do to get right, and for instruction, teaching what you need to do to stay right. So one of the two reliable guides is the Word of God, and secondly, the Spirit of God is our instructor. I want to close with an illustration about Albert Speer. You may not be a history buff, but you may not know who Albert Speer is. Albert Speer was once interviewed about his last book on ABC's Good Morning Show. Albert Speer was Adolf Hitler's confidant, confidant and his architect. It was he who his technological genius was credited with keeping the Nazi factories humming throughout World War II. In another era, he probably would have become one of the world's industrial giants. He was the only one of the 24 war criminals tried at Nuremberg who admitted his guilt. Speer spent 20 years in Spandau prison through interview, in that interview, the interviewer referred to a passage into one of Spears' earlier writings and said, you have said that guilt can never be forgiven or shouldn't be. Do you still feel that way? It says a, la a look of sadness went across his face as he responded and said, I served a sentence of 20 years. I could say... I'm a free man. My conscience has been cleared by serving the whole time as punishment. But I can't do that. I still carry the burden of what happened to millions of people during Hitler's lifetime. And I can't rid myself of it. This new book is a part of my atoning of clearing my conscience. The interviewer pressed the point saying... You don't really think you'll be able to clear it totally, do you? And Spear shook his head and he said, I don't think it would be possible. For 35 years, Spear had accepted complete responsibility for his crime. His writings were filled with contrition and warnings to others to avoid his mortal sin. He desperately sought to make amends, all to no avail. 
And that's the story of everyone without Jesus. That the only true atonement, the only saving of our conscience, the only way to truly be forgiven is to recognize that Jesus has paid everything. He has made the complete atonement. Hebrews does such a wonderful job of, of making that clear. It says, because it says, and, and he after having made this complete sacrifice, sat down at the right hand of God. His sacrifice, his service, was accepted by the Father. And through it, any who will come to to the Father through him can receive that forgiveness. A spell for a word of prayer. <clears throat> Father, I want to thank you for these who have come out tonight. It's a nasty night outside. It's been much easier to stay at home. And I pray that somehow the things that we've looked at and discussed and looked at together tonight will help us that we can see in those shadows foreshadowing of what Jesus came to do. That God was preparing his people uh, to receive his son. But even in so doing, many of them failed because they did not they did not accept him for who he was. So Lord, I ask you to help us. As we go out in this world, we'll still see people all around us who struggle with guilt. Then they can't seem to find any answers. No way that they can find forgiveness for their sins. Father, I pray you'd help us to be vessels and vehicles of your gospel. We're asking in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much. I appreciate you being here.